Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, uh, the gospel of Mark. This, this story unfolds very quickly before our eyes, and we uh, appreciate the, um, you know, the, the brevity of these stories. He gives us a small paragraph, and the other um, gospels sometimes elaborate more on them. And so, Father, we, um, as we move through this story, we ask that you would help us uh, to understand what happened in context uh, Lord, that you would um, show us principles that are timeless from the text, that we would know how to apply them in our day-to-day lives. We are grateful for the story. We thank you uh, for the story that's unfolding before our eyes this morning. Uh, again, Lord, we ask that you would guide us, that you would direct us. May your spirit uh, enable us to, to understand uh, the thing that is before us. And may he uh, convict us, Lord, of areas of our life um, that maybe restrict Um, our relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us um, to to order our lives in a way that um, would free us to to honor you, to serve you, to walk with you faithfully all the days of our life. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So Mark chapter 6, the verses divide in a weird way. So some of your Bibles... I. I'm thinking we'll split the verse in the middle and we're going to pick up with the second half. And he was going around the villages teaching and he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so, Father, we do thank you for the story. Uh, it's it's a, just a simple narrative. And, Lord, I ask that you would help us to, um, to, to enter into the story, Lord. May it come alive to us and may we um, be moved by what you have recorded for us in your revelation. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so to, we're, we're at a, a, a tipping point or a, a shift in um, storylines within, within the Gospel of Mark. The, the last section, the first six verses, um, it, it sort of is this, um, this end point of the story where Jesus has been rejected by, by his people. And, and, and we, we're left at the first part of verse 6 where Jesus is looking at his hometown um, and he's just wondering at their unbelief. He, he's literally amazed at their unbelief that they saw him, they were aware of the whole story of everything that happened. They'd seen the works, they'd seen the miracles, they'd... they'd they had seen everything that authenticated that he was indeed the Messiah. And yet they said, 
This is just Jesus that we grew up with. And so it sort of ends. Up to this point, the disciples have been in the backdrop of the story. They, they've been called, but they've been following Jesus. They haven't, um, ha- you know, if this was a movie, they hadn't had any speaking lines yet. They were there, but they haven't really done anything. And so today they're going sort of, to step out on stage and they're going to be challenged in a new way. Um, up to this point, Jesus has been training and equipping them and preparing them for the day when he would depart. If we were to go back to chapter 3, verse 14, you don't have to go there. Um, after he called the disciples, we're told that he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out. And, and so that was sort of his model of ministry is that he pulled these guys with him. They walked with him. They, they observed him in ministry. They were just with him all of the time. And much of what they learned from Jesus was, you know, sort of along the saying, it was caught, not taught. And, and it really is a sort of a, a refreshing model of discipleship. Spend time with Jesus and then allow him to send you out to, to be used by him. And so now we come to the story where Jesus is going to send them out, um, not permanently. This is sort of, I, I think of... Um, you know, if you're trying to get your pilot's license, you eventually uh, do your first solo flight where you're kind of launched out and then you come back and then, you know, hopefully everything goes well. Um, but there's sort of that you go out and you're now on your own and you need a sort of function, uh, maybe like a driver's license. You know, yesterday at, yesterday at here, uh, we were here and, you know, people will come into the parking lot do whatever they're doing, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And we normally, I normally go out and say, hey, can I help you? And so I see out my window, I see a car park. Okay, no big deal. People park all the time, you know, make a phone call. Then the car backed up. That's really weird. Then it like did a left turn, three-point turn and parked again. I'm like, what's wrong with the, maybe they saw me through the window. And then after about, 15 minutes of this car just parking like in every single spot. I walk out there like something's not right. And then I see a, a, you know, a, a gentleman in a lawn chair sitting there. And it was, oh, somebody's doing driving lessons on learning how to park their car. And he's like, yeah, everything's fine. I'm like, okay, I just, it was kind of weird. I just see this car. And dad was given the child a test run before they were going to launch out. And so Jesus, in today's story, is sort of given the guys his test run. They're to go out, and their, their training sessions have reached a point where they, they now need to go out, ex, ex, see what life is like on their own, and then they'll come back and they'll be trained. I, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. You can see the, um, the parallel accounts are, are up on the screen here. So Matthew chapter 10 for a lot of it, it's 5 through 42. He records what happened. And then in Luke, verses, well, not, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, he gives an account. I think it's interesting that um, Matthew gives the longest account because this, this training session was very much limited to the people of Israel that we'll see that they were sent out and told exclusively, go to your brethren. Um, but before we get there, verse the very first part, and he was going around the village teaching. This is sort of a summary statement by Mark. 
what had been happening. Mark records two of these uh, discourses. In Luke 8, we see that Jesus actually had three sort of uh, journeys through the region of Galilee. Um, This is the third time that he's gone out through the region of Galilee. It sort of summarizes what he's been doing. He's been going around to the villages, teaching, uh, demonstrating his power in his teaching, authenticating his message uh, through miracles. And then in verse 12, we see that he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so uh, here's... Here we are going to get some on-the-job experience. Uh, he's called them to himself. He said, okay, guys, you're going to go out two by two um, and come back to me, sort of explain what happened. We don't have a lot of details about what happened following this. Um, the, the mission, according to Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, we are told by Matthew that these 12 that Jesus sent out after instructing them do not go in the way of the Gentiles, Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so their mission is is clear. It's very much to the nation of Israel to let them know that the Messiah was on scene. This was great news. The the nation of Israel should have been ecstatic about this. They've been longing for Messiah. Um, They missed Uh, they missed how the Messiah would come. Somehow they missed Isaiah 53. They were so oppressed by Rome that they were ready for a a political leader to free them from from the the situation that they had on hand. And so he summoned the 12. He began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. This word authority is is an interesting word. It's... um, there's two different Greek words that you could use for authority or translated power. There's the one that seems to be really popular within Christian circles, the word um, dynamis or dunamis. There's two different endings in that we know that one. Dynamite, power, there's explosion. And then there's another Greek word, which I won't bore you. It's, it's, a, it's a different word that carries the same connotation, but it's slightly different. And I think the best way... To illustrate the difference of this is we should all know about C4, or maybe I need to give a class on explosives, and, and explosives are a lot of fun, really powerful. If you're down on El Norte Parkway and there's a truck coming and you want to stop the truck, you could use some C4 and you could stop the truck and with, a, with a block of C4. Um, the block of C4 innately in its own right has enough power to stop the truck. Now, a couple weeks ago, there was a traffic stop. There was a, you know, a DUI checkpoint. And there were just officers standing there. They wanted to stop me. And guys standing in the road can't stop me, right? But suddenly, because he has a badge on his shirt, he has some power, not innately, like I could totally just run him over, Right? <laughs> But we don't do that, right? <laughs> just, a, just a, we don't do that because that badge carries authority, not in his own power, b- but in the power of the authorities that have been placed over him and us. So that if you were to blow through that checkpoint, you're going to have all of the power of the authority coming out against you. 
And, and so that's a better understanding of this word authority. It's a, it's a delegated authority. The disciples were sent out, but they were sent out by Christ under Christ's authority, and that they carried his power, not that they had any power of their own, but their power was delegated to them from the Messiah. And so they very much had power, but they themselves didn't. If, hopefully that's clear enough. Um, and they were sent out in pairs. There's, there's practical reasons for this. You know, Ecclesiastes talk about, uh, you know, there's, there's power that, that two or three together are, that are, are stronger together than to be alone. Um, there's a legal connotation against this as they're going out town to town proclaiming the good news, proclaiming that the king had arrived of the kingdom. By having two, they then had a legal declaration that there were two witnesses, which you needed to have in order to, to, to say something legally. And so they're, they're sent out in pairs, and they're given some instructions. Verse 8, and he, and you can almost kind of divide up this section if, if you're Reading out of the New American Standard, I know for sure, you'll see this and he, and he, and he, that it kind of breaks it up to follow the train of thought. And so we see that he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. So we don't, the last report we have is Nazareth. They're somewhere in the Galilee region. You get the impression that they're sort of away from their homes. And he says, okay, don't bring anything other than what you have. Um, you should take nothing for your journey. Uh, except a mere staff. There's, and there's two different words for a staff, and this seems to be just like a simple walking staff. This isn't like a protection staff. Um, no bread, no, no bag, no money in their belt. But they were to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. And so the idea of a, the second tunic would be, it was kind of, um, they had a way of basically accessorizing their outfit with a sleeping bag. And so the second tunic would provide a, an opportunity to have a bed mat when they were out and about. And so he basically says, don't take anything with you. Just, just go as you are. The, the, the equivalent to illustrate this would be like if I said, hey guys, you're never going to believe it, but I have six buses out front. So after church, we're going to load up in the buses we're going to send a team to the Bahamas to help with some disaster relief. We're going to send a team to North Carolina to do some disaster relief. And we'll come up with six other places. You're not going to go home. I hope you guys wore comfortable shoes today because you're going to be doing some extreme stuff. Just go, just go out. And I can already see you guys going, but, but can I just, can I run home to grab my toothbrush? Just don't worry about the toothbrush. You'll be okay. Like, you'll survive. It, the idea is that they were to forego normal preparations that anyone would make for any sort of trip. They were just to go out. And so th the results of this, like, can you imagine? Like, if literally it's like you're going to go away for two weeks and you're just going to leave right now, um, it would force the disciples to, to have a sort of an extra dose of having to be dependent upon God for, like, where am I sleeping tonight? What am I going to eat this afternoon? Um, how am I going to brush my teeth in the morning? Like, you know, all, all, all of these things. 
And, and I do think that there's something even, as much as you make preparations, if you ever have the pleasure of going on a short-term missions trip, you're, you're stepping out of your comfort zone, you're stepping out of your element, and you just simply can't, you can't plan for everything to go right. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain increase in forcing you to trust God to provide for the outcome. You know, if, you, if you've never done something, I would encourage you. Brian's right here every single Wednesday. He's, you always have room for people to go with you, right? You always have people, room for people to go with you to Mexico. He always has room. Every Wednesday, you can go at 2 o'clock, go across the border, help some kids at an orphanage, cook them a meal, and then come home. And, and I can, we always have these reservations. There's a line, uh, there's a political line in the dirt. And that causes a whole bunch of fear for us not to want to go. And if you go do it once, no matter how much you prepare, when you cross that line in the sand, you don't know what's going to happen. And it's going to cause you to be more dependent on God. And I think that Jesus is setting them up to sort of be kicked out of the the nest of being under Jesus's sort of wings of protection. He says, you have my authority, go. Well, Jesus, what if? What if you have my authority? And so there, there's going to be an, just this acute response on their part to, um, to depend on God to meet their needs. Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Um, this in, the, in its simplest form of understanding is during that time when you traveled somewhere, there was no Motel 6 where they'll keep the light on for you. If you found yourself where you needed to go into Motel 6, it most, most likely was a brothel or something very bad. And so it was, the, the community had an obligation that if somebody pa- was passing through town, there was a, um, it was just built into their DNA, their culture, to, to, to welcome people in, to be hospitable which I still think that there's a, a command for us as believers to be hospitable to one another. Um, it might look a little bit different. But the picture was you go into town and there's a family, you know, they have kids, they have all this stuff, um, and they, they have a really small studio apartment. They invite you in. You're there for two or three days. You're still welcome to stay there. The town is still welcoming you. But then there's a retired couple that's been very successful and they have a huge house. In fact, they have a guest house that's unused. Pool, jacuzzi. Actually, we have a car you can use. You want to come over to our house? And so the implication is, if you've settled into a house and you get another opportunity, don't leave that, like you have, you've been provided for don't shun that house to, to step up to another the situation. On Friday night, it was really neat. We went to this thing, and I, um, I, I knew that an old SEAL buddy was going to be there. So, uh, and, and his family, since the last time I've seen him, has expanded by seven. And uh, we haven't seen each other in 15 years. I was like, hey, Justin, like, it's so good to see you. You got seven kids, and this is like, you know, he's a beautiful family. 
He has all, like, all girls except for one lone boy in there, and these little girls were just, like, melting my heart. And I was like, I, um, if you guys ever come back down, you're, you have an open invitation to our house. And, and at one point, they're like, well, that would be really great, because right now we're staying at Oceanside. We're going to stay really late, and our friends have, a, like, a studio, and they have a little baby. And so for us to descend on them with nine, it's going to be awkward, and and so it, the, the equivalent would be like, hey, why don't you just text them and say you're not coming tonight? You can come over to our house. That would be really rude if they did that. And it would be very inconsiderate to the people who made plans uh, for them to ditch them because they found, uh, you know, better, more child-friendly accommodations. And so I think that that's the spirit that Jesus is telling these guys. You go into town, you're welcome. Somebody brings you into your home. You stay there until you leave town. Now, I didn't do too much digging, but apparently there's, in the early church, people started to abuse this, like they never would leave. And then the early church fathers started, like, uh, giving some more instructions, like, this doesn't mean that you never leave, like, that they have to go to the judge to remove you from the house. Um, but, but, but what Jesus is saying, you go there, you stay, don't, don't. Don't abandon the people that, it, that demonstrated hospitality to you. Um, verse 11, he says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you, you go from, out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. So in, in the most practical sense, I, I see Jesus saying, just, just go and sort of exercise the path of least resistance. They welcome you, stay. They tell you to leave, Leave. Don't pick fights that don't need to be started. I, um, I, uh, I'm trying to figure out which way I, you know. There, 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 sometimes I think with evangelism that we get so aggressive that we start fights that we don't necessarily need to start. And we can do more damage in the long run of the person that you're trying to reach. Um, <clears throat> I think I experience this a lot as a chaplain. Like, I, I read this, and I, as a chaplain with the police department, I kind of don't try to force myself into cars of the guys that don't want me. I'm just like, hey, that person welcomes me, so I'll just ride with that person all the time instead of sticking myself in Joe Schmo's car who like, wants nothing to do with the chaplain and the sergeant wants to punish him. And, and so I, I tend not to do that. It's like if I'm welcomed, I'll go. If I'm not welcome. God bless you. You know, I don't, I'm not going to force myself into that situation. And so he says, if you're not received, just go ahead and, as you leave town, shake the dust off your feet. This was a cultural thing that if they went to a Gentile territory and they weren't received, it was sort of like, we've given our testimony to you. This message from God, you've heard it. You've rejected it. We're now, we're free and clear. We're no longer guilty of any sort of rejection that you have done. You've heard the news you're now liable before God. We've done our part. Thank you. Have a nice day. And they exit stage right. <clears throat> and then we're told in verse 12 that they went out and they preached that men should repent. Um, this, this is the proclamation that um, repentance, it's, it's the understanding in your mind that you're wrong. And the thing that God has been saying about you is correct. I don't necessarily think 
that it means that there's actually change in that moment. But there's that moment in your life when you're confronted with the gospel, you're confronted with your sinfulness, you're falling short, recognizing that there's consequences for your sin, and sort of being emotionally stopped in your tracks to say, I was wrong. I'm in trouble. And it's from that posture of humility that, that God delivers the good news to say, you know what, I love you, and Christ died for you. And there's, there's going to be implications that your life will have to change. But I believe that God responds in that moment when you mentally acknowledge. You could struggle with your sin, whatever it is, for, for years before God gets a hold of you. Um, but it's the, it's the same thing we're confronted with today. And it's the same thing that our world rejects today uh, more and more. Like I think that I, I'm hearing in the news that Drew Brees, you know, the, the team, he used to be the quarterback of the team that used to be here that I won't say their name anymore and, you know, I'm a little upset still. Um, but apparently he's like, I guess there's a such thing as a national bring your Bibles to school day and, and he said, I know what, I'm a, I'm a believer and, you know, I want my kids, like bring your Bibles to school today, kids. Don't be obnoxious. And I guess he's under all sorts of fire. I don't know any more of the details than that, you know, the one line about it. But, but today, Christianity says, you know what? We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin requires punishment. And we're confronted with that truth, and, and you have a decision to make. Now, the, the, the good news following the bad news when the darkness of your sin is, is sort of made clear is that there's this beautiful image of a God who sent his son that went to the cross and bore um, the, the weight of the penalty that was due you. And he took it all. He absorbed it all 100%. And he says, all you have to do is believe. And you're forgiven. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful message. Now, this is in the Gospels. The Gospels are written post the cross, but happened before the cross. And so there's, there's some question marks in my, like, wh- what, were th- what were they repenting? How, what did it look like? The people that responded, certainly they responded positively that, no, this Jesus that we've heard about, there's validity to the words that he says. And he authenticates the things that he says with these miraculous acts that no one else can do. He teaches in a way with authority that none of the other teachers have. And then we see that these, these young disciples, we see that as they went out, that there was a, there was a positive response. They were, they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. I, I want to caution us with this... Um, th- there's nothing mysterious about this oil in, in, in the context. Like, I uh, unfortunately, the only thing I've been thinking of is cough drops because I've been trying not to cough for the last two days. And the oil was, it was just, reg- it was like the medicine that they had at the time. And they're going out, and it's like if they had a pocket of cough drops, it's like it, the guy's like really struggling over here. Here, have a co- I have a cough drop, have it, let me pray for you. And that he's miraculously healed because he uses this very common sort of 
medicine that he has, it, it, that there was something supernatural about it in, in this moment because they carry the authority of Jesus who is authenticating their, their message. Um, but I can't like, on one hand, I can't imagine what these young guys are thinking as they're seeing all of this. You think that they would, they would be utterly transformed by the power that they were seeing and now that was being demonstrated through their ministry. But Peter hasn't denied Jesus yet, guys. Like, like this isn't anything that's... uh, It was was a stepping stone for them, moving them towards growing their faith, moving them towards um, becoming the apostles that they would become following the resurrection of Christ, following Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit. Um, these are young men that are being stretched by the Lord. And this is such a, a, a short passage and thinking like where do we draw applications in this text? Because we have to be careful because this passage is very descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, to, to explain that, what Jesus did to these guys, it's sort of, it's locked in time. There's a message that was given to a handful of guys. Um, everything that was done here, even for the guys that received this message, it didn't stay true to them going out into the future indefinitely. Now let me explain. If we move from this story to the Lord's Supper, right? It's, it, was, it was some time to come. I, I don't know exactly how much distance, but certainly less than three years, probably like a year out, maybe, early, maybe less. And at the Lord's Supper, Luke in chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, he looks at me, he's like, hey guys, do you remember that time I sent you out? And I told you not to bring anything with you? They're like, yeah, like how could we forget that? I'd say, yeah, we totally remember Verse 35, and he said to them, remember when I sent you off no money belts and bag and sandals and you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, yeah, like, of course we remember that. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. He's telling them that within 24 hours, I'm going to be nailed to a cross amongst criminals. Things are changing now. Things are going to get really, really, really ugly. And so before I told you to go out unprepared without anything, now I'm telling you that if you got a, there's like a mini preppers here, you know, like that, hey, if you got a money belt, get it. Fill it up. Um, if you don't have a sword, and this is a two-edged sword, it's, it's, a, it's a sword that's only used for self-defense. He says, if you don't have one of those, sell the, ba- sell the coat off your back and get one because you're going to need it. And then it, it basically, like a couple of them run out and they come back and say, okay, Lord, we got a sword. Is this good? He's like, that's good. And then we always like to, or I like to bust Peter's chops because I so identify with him. So sometimes making fun of Peter, I feel like I'm like confronting myself. We, we know the story, right? We always give Peter a hard time because they all come to arrest Peter. What does Peter do? Clue? <laughs> uh, 
the fisherman tries to weld a soldier's sword, and he, instead of cutting his head off, he cuts off his ear. So he really had a tor- terrible swing, in my humble opinion. He was trying to kill the guy. But he cuts off his ear, and we all said, Peter, Peter, you're not supposed to, you know. Because Jesus says, oh, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And stop it, this is supposed to be. We divorce that context from the context that is just m- minutes, hours beforehand when Peter was just told that things are changing. I just think poor Peter's like having so much dumped at him and so much is happening. And, and so my point, from the incident in today's story, these guys were being trained. Then when we get to the Lord's Supper, things changed again. And then from the crucifixion until the ascension, well, from the crucifixion to the resurrection, things changed. And then you have from the resurrection to the ascension, things changed. And then you have from the ascension until they're all sitting around waiting for the Spirit to come. And then you have Pentecost where the church is born. The Spirit of God breathes on these men that witnessed all of this and then inspires these men then to take the message of the church, which is where we get all of the epistles from, the letters. At Second Peter, it's Peter who was there for all of this in chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. I feel a cough coming, trying to think through it. Uh, let's move, let's not cough. We don't want to go there. Um, <clears throat> But he writes, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men moved by the spirit spoke from God. And the reason I bring this up, so, so we have the, the epistles, which are you know Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and Colossians, and we can go on through all of them. He's saying that this isn't just men writing. These are, these are men who walked with Jesus or a couple of them who were, walked very closely with men who did. And the Spirit of God came on these men, used their personality, used their experience, and then exp- inspired them to provide revelation, which is recorded in the canon of Scripture, which we have in our Bibles. And so we have the whole of the revelation And so when we're going through the Bible, we have to be careful to understand it in context and as things have been revealed. Because you could read today's story and say, God wants us all to go and just sell everything and wander in sandals. And and so that would be, that would not, you 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 might be able to tell some amazing things that God did through that and God may inspire somebody to do that. But in this text, it's descriptive of what happened between Jesus and these 12 disciples and their launching and their preparation. Saying that, that doesn't mean there's not principles that we can't draw out from this text. We have to be careful in how we apply the revelation that's been given to us for our good. And so how do, how, how do we handle this text? Because um, it's a really cool story. Like, it's a super cool story, and it would be really easy to fly over and not to, like, linger, but I forced myself to linger over it. 
Um, first and foremost, when I look at this story of these, like, whatever it is, six verses or seven verses, um, I'm encouraged that Jesus just uses ordinary people. There's nothing special about the apostles. Like, these were fishermen. They, or most of them, whether tax collectors, zealots, like, all, they're hooligans. They're, they're uneducated men is what the religious establishment said about them. But they had spent time with Jesus. And their time with Jesus transformed them. And so I'm encouraged that Jesus, as he stepped on earth, he just took regular, ordinary people like you and me, and he trained them, and he prepared them, he sent them out, let them come back, let them learn from their experiences, train them some more, they continued to make mistakes, we see the patience of Christ over and over and over again, especially as it relates to Mr. Peter. Um, but then we see how God used Peter. And so God is patient with them. He's patient with us. He doesn't expect you on day one of your conversion to be some rogue scholar that can uh, know the whole Bible inside and out. It's incremental. It's step at a time, step at a time. You will make mistakes. You will get knocked down. You, you will understand Scripture incorrectly. And then... As you grow, you're like, oh, I really understood that. It's ha- it happens to me all the time, and I have degrees in it. Like, I'm still growing. Oh, I was a little bit off in that. And I hate, like, uh, 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 sometimes it'll happen. I say something, it's recorded, and I go, like, oh, I got it. Let me correct the record. I used to think that, but now I don't think I think that so much. And next week, I might think a slightly different nuance about it. I love that Jesus takes him on a test flight in this story. Like, I've kind of bled into my, my second point. Um, I'll never forget early in my Christian life, I, I, had, I, I, I had come far enough in my Christian walk that I knew that I wanted to serve Christ. I had no idea what it meant. Um, I certainly was not thinking the pastoral ministry. And... There was, I remember it was a Sunday, I was in town, and I received word that one of, I, a, glu, a group of my very uh, close friends are desert rats, and there was a guy that I'd met a few times, um, I'd heard that on Saturday afternoon, he was out at Glamis on a, on a motorcycle, and he was T-boned or he T-boned a dune buggy that kind of came across a dune, and that he was life-flighted to UC San Diego, kind of at the hospital, or Scripps, whatever one's over there. And and I remember getting word about this. And I was at church, and I remember going to one of the pastors to try to get one of the pastors to go pray for the guy who I knew was not a believer, and I had no idea what the situation was, And so I went up to the pastor and I said, there's this guy, he's been life-flighted. And like, I'm just really convicted that he needs to go get prayed for. And he said, oh, brother, let's pray pray right now. Put his arm around me. And as he's praying, I realized that he totally missed what I was asking him. Because his whole prayer was that I would have boldness and courage and that I... And I was like, no, 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 like, this is not the game I'm playing. Like that. 
but God kind of kicked me in the rear. It's time for you to go. And the pastor at the end, after he hugged me, he said, I can't wait to hear tonight how it went, so make sure you come back. <laughs> and so, I, like, I didn't go, I didn't do visitation. Like, now I'm, like, this is, like, easy peasy. Like, this is, no, that is not a stretching thing for me at all today. But then I, like, pull up in the parking lot, and I see some people that are clearly, like, shaken up, and it turned out his mom was in the lobby. He was such, there was no way I was going to get back to the guy and I'm kind of like, oh, God, I made it into this waiting room. Like, I made it here. I don't, like, how do you initiate something like this? Like, and so the mom's like, well, so thankful you came. And, and then at some point, I'm like, oh, it's kind of crazy, but I feel like I'm supposed to pray or something. I don't know. And she's like, oh, I would love it if you prayed. <laughs> and so I, I think that was my first pastoral prayer. And I came back and I reported, and it was, it was really painless. I mean, it really wasn't that big of a deal. And then from there, I got comfortable. And then, you know, I think I've shared the Shangri-La story as I was training for a marathon. Then it was like God started saying, hey, you need to go teach a Bible study old person's home. I'm like, ah, that's, they're not, they're just California God. They don't allow that. And after a few months of running from God, trying to avoid old, old people home in La Mesa, I learned that there's a lot of old person's homes in La Mesa and that God wasn't going to give up on stretching me a little bit more. And so I think this is a Christian life. You, you come to Christ, you receive him, He's going to then push you to do something that's beyond your comfort zone in serving him. You're going to do it. You're going to grow. And then you're like, that wasn't so bad. That was really kind of cool. And then you're going to go about your life again, and then he's going to rinse and repeat. <laughs> and he does, he's relentless about stretching us. And so we have a way of trying to step out of, of doing that. But if you want to be faithful to God, he is going to stretch you. He's going to... Um, puts you in situations that you're uncomfortable with. And it's beautiful. And it doesn't require you to be perfect. You're never going to attain the place where you're ready to like do the things that he's calling you to do. I think finally from the story, which has been a bit harder for me to articulate, um, I, I think that there's a principle within this story for us as his followers to, to order our lives in a way that, um, that, are, that are sort of on two sides of, of the coin, like two sides of the same coin. Um, the one is to order your life in a way where you remove things that restrict you from obeying God. Um, it could be how you've wired your financial life, which is what I really like about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is like, his whole thing is about rewire your life so that you're free to do what God wants you to do. The number one reason why people are turned down from missions organizations, like people say, hey, I want to go serve in the mission field. The first question they ask you is how much debt do you have? And whatever the number, they say, okay, go pay off the debt. And when you're done paying off your debt, come back and we would love to serve you. Like, have you served with us? Um, it, it could be that you've so committed yourself to stuff, like, like simply early in my Christian life. Like, I don't go to church on Sundays because I'm a pastor. It might be hard to convince you all of that. But I come to church because I'm a Christian. I just happen to be functioning in this role 
And I made a commitment early on, like even when I was active duty and I was traveling a lot, I made a commitment that I would worship God on Sundays with a local church as best was in my capacity. And so I've been to a lot of Calvary chapels around the world. Like I've popped into a bunch of random churches just like here. And then I've been in places where, man, there's like just only two of us in this platoon that are believers and there's no church anywhere. So like, hey, it's Sunday night. Do you want to go down and read the Bible and try to pretend like we're doing church? Like to the best of our ability. Like I've done communion with grape juice. No, 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 that's normal. I've done, it's nothing radical. Hey guys, I've done communion with grape juice. That's really, I can't laugh. I um, Grape nuts, that's where the word went wrong. And orange flavored Gatorade. Like, because that's all we had. And, and, and so sometimes we order our lives in such a way and we're really good at making excuses. When God's saying like, maybe you need to like remove some of the stuff so that I, my word says don't neglect the fellowship of, of the saints. Like that they're, we, we worship on Sundays because it's sort of implied in the Bible that, that his believers are to gather and to worship. So there's removing things that restrict you from, from serving God, walking with God. And, and then I think there's the other things of making your life uh, ready so that you can be available to, to do the things that God asks you to do. Um, you know, I've already called out Brian and going to Mexico on Wednesdays. The first barrier that I, always, I will hear from people is, well, I don't have a passport. Well, have you ever thought about maybe going to get a passport and saying, I'm going to get a passport by faith just because I want to be available, if God says I want you to go to Mexico, then you don't have that barrier. And so you remove things just so you can be ready. I'm not even saying that, let's say Mexico wasn't even on the table. Like, I'm just going to get my passport. It's good for 10 years, guys, like if you're an adult. Like, so it's got a good lifespan. I'm just going to get this passport so that if God calls, I can go. So when I look at this story, I, I, I see in this story like to order your, your lives in a way that when God says go or do, you can go or you can do. With that, I think we can pray. And Father, we do thank you. I thank you for these lives of these, these mostly young disciples who had their whole world sort of... Um, changed in the meeting of Christ. And Father, like them, we each will be confronted with his message and, and, and his life. And so, Father, I pray, first and foremost, that as we are confronted with the gospel, that Christ gave his life in exchange for ours so that we can have eternal life with you. Father, I pray for those that have not responded to this, that they would respond in a way that they could receive eternal life or if they've received eternal life but are unsure that they would be certain that they are secure in Christ. And Father, for those of us that have responded, we thank you for the encouragement that is found in these ordinary, imperfect people that you called to yourself and that you commissioned into ministry. 
we thank you, God, that you are one that, that recognizes that perfection is only found in you and that you take us, our imperfect lives, and you commission us and you place us into service. You stretch us in little ways that seem like huge ways. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to truly hear your voice, that we wouldn't resist um, your leading in our lives. We ask, Father, that you would show us areas of our lives that are uh, maybe have become a, a God to us, untouchable areas that we won't give on or abandon. We ask that you would help us to worship you alone and that we would order our lives in a way that we um, are available to serve you and are willing to serve you. Um, we thank you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.